Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Um, as I like to do in every uh, one of these uh, podcasts, I like to tell sort of a story that sort of relates to the person that I'm sitting across. And, um, and this story involves myself and our guest today, Peter Engel. Um, we uh, worked together, which we'll talk about on a, on a show called Last Comic Standing. That was a, an incredible experience for both of us in, in many ways. Uh, had a lot of ups and downs. And this story sort of goes about how it is when you're in the business and sometimes you have those moments where you feel like you're in control and sometimes you have those moments where you feel like you're not in control and mixed in are moments where there's people who are telling you things that are true and other times when people are telling you things that are not true and you have to decipher and navigate and figure out ways to get the information you need uh, any way you can. And Peter was a master at that and uh, I was just happy to be learning from uh, one of the best in the business. And, um, what happened was, uh, I had gotten an email from a young man who said, listen, um, why don't you think about doing a show like last comic standing with celebrity impersonators? And I thought, Hmm, that sounds like a 
great idea. So I went to our business affairs person and I had him do a deal with this young man to lock up the idea so I wasn't going to be in any legal ramifications. And we did the deal and I immediately, I was having breakfast every Thursday morning with Peter. Uh, I loved my Thursday morning breakfasts and I came to the Thursday morning breakfast every time I'd come with a bunch of ideas for Peter. I'd have a list of ideas every single week and every week he'd say, Nah, no, 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 too small. No, no, that's not going to happen. Barry, what's wrong with you? And um, But I would always try and keep being persistent because I wanted to do more with him because I really enjoyed my experiences with him on Last Comic Standing. And so I pitch him the idea of this thing called The Imposter, which was Last Comic Standing for Celebrity Impersonators. And... uh for the first time, he liked it, he thought it was great, and he suggested we go forward and make a sizzle reel. And we started reaching out to all these different celebrity impersonators, and we got all these tapes and VHS tapes and three-quarter-inch tapes, and we made a reel for the show that was really, really wonderful and funny. But honestly, because of the quality of all these uh, people's tapes, it was probably one of the lowest quality tapes, sizzle reels that I'd ever done in my life. But true to form, like they say, you don't turn off the Academy Awards because of the backdrop. It was such a unique and special idea that had never been done before that it was wonderful. And so because we were at NBC with Last Comic Standing and we had had a lot of ups and downs, uh, my thought was is that we go to the other networks and we don't go to NBC because they've been so up and down and it's been a little dodgy. But Peter, his roots were at NBC and, you know, he said, look, we'll just go to NBC. Kevin Riley's there and uh, he's a good friend of mine and, uh, and we've uh, known each other our whole careers. And so uh, we go to NBC and we uh, show the uh, sizzle reel to Craig Plestis, the head of um, reality, and they seem to love it. Uh, they seem to want to do it. They actually were talking about episodes, lots of episodes. And it got us excited about it. And then throughout certain episodes, they were taping at Last Comic Standing. It was a big year. We were at the Pasadena Playhouse where we were selling out 3,000 people and turning people away. Craig would come up to us and it seemed like to me like one day he'd come up to us and it, it, we thought we had like eight episodes and then the next day he'd come up and he'd be like listen I thought of that we got six and then the next time he'd come up to us and we'd have less and 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 then it was a situation where we felt like he was jerking us around and he was saying that it was a show that they really didn't want to do um so Peter, in his ultimate wisdom, and I said, let's just go to the other networks. Let's go. He's like, no, I'm going to find out the truth about this. And he called up his friend Kevin Riley, who he was meeting the next day. And he sat down with him and he asked him about it. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I like that idea. And uh, listen, I'll if you want, I'll give you eight episodes of the show to make the show, which is unheard of in, in the business. Normally, you have to do some kind of pilot or do whatever. And so... Then we're set to go to the finale or something at the Pasadena Playhouse. And Craig Plestis has no idea that Peter's met with Kevin Riley. 
So that's the fun part of the business. When you have information and other people don't have the information. And so Craig Plessis comes up and he says, listen, I just have to tell you, I mean, I've talked to Kevin about this and we're prepared to offer you a pilot with a penalty. Now, for those of you who don't know, a penalty would be like if they don't do the pilot, there'd some be some financial thing that they'd give you this little amount of money so you know that they have an incentive to pick it up, but it's not full episodes. So you have pilot and penalty. And Peter knew in his heart what Kevin had already told him, but he knew there was something fishy going on, and uh, he got mad at Craig Plestis, and I was just standing there, and, and Craig Plestis said to Peter and I, he said, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you worrying about? It's, just, it's like getting a little bit pregnant. Peter looked at me and said, Barry, say whatever you want, buddy. You can say whatever you want. And there was a, a woman was with Peter at the time, and I, and I looked at Craig Plestis, and I looked at Peter, and I said, it's not like getting a little bit pregnant, Craig. It's like coming on a woman's face. <laughs> And he looked at me like I had stepped in some kind of bad animal feces. And Peter walked away. Melanie, his friend, walked away. And Craig walked away. And I was standing there alone. And I thought to myself, oh, this might not have been the best thing to say at the time. I might have to go to human resources. But Peter knew something all along that I didn't understand that he had set up a meeting the next day with ABC, with Steve McPherson, the president. And in his mind, he knew if we, Peter and I, could get in the room with McPherson, we wouldn't have to worry about anything I said. And we went to ABC the next day, and we pitched a show to Steve McPherson, and we went down the elevator, and in the parking lot... Peter Engel's phone rings, and it's Steve McPherson, and he says, guys, don't take any more pitches. I'm going to guarantee you nine episodes at a million dollars apiece. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right, very excited about this today. My guest is somebody who is near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of the few people that I can say is just uh, blown me away in my career throughout the time so that I've gotten to see him uh, produce uh, television shows. Um, he's credited uh, for basically creating saturday morning television on nbc uh with a little show called saved by the bell which has uh basically been seen in uh hundreds of countries all over the world 
he went on to do so many shows that went to syndication. By means syndication, it means uh, at least a hundred episodes produced and sold in syndication. Not only did he do Saved by the Bell, he did California Dreams, he did Hang Time, USA High, um, City Guys, and uh, along the way, he. Uh, work with me in creating uh, Last Comic Standing with Jay Moore. Um, a guy whose logo is a heart that was drawn by his children. And I assure you, as we begin this interview today, this guy has more heart than anybody I know. Welcome, Peter Engel. Hey, it's nice to be here, Barry. Let me respond to your opening. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I got a little dirty there for you. Well, I wrote I had to write I happened to just write the chapter in my book, uh, which is called I Was I Was Saved by the Bell. I wrote that chapter entitled When You Have the Network by the Balls, which I only had twice out of 16 series. What was the other time? The other one was City Guys. We had developed it for Fox, and it was such a battle between the two giants, you know, business affairs of NBC. And I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. No, I had my company then at NBC, which they owned half. We had our own people and our own staff. I said, we'll just pay, we'll write the script ourselves. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll pay me and Scott Gordon are writing it. And by the time we finish the script, I'm sure the deal won't be done. <laughs> and it wasn't. And I said, so I, now NBC gets a hold of the script, even though they're my partners, and they want it for NBC, and Fox wants it for whatever they're doing, right? And it was great, because I had... It's great because I had two giants uh, fighting over the script, and we did it for five years, it turned out, 105 episodes on NBC. But to respond to your thing about getting the person a little bit pregnant, um, when Kevin called me in the car, he said, I hear you really got, you blew your top. I said, no, I was fine. It was Barry. Kevin Riley. Kevin Riley called me on the ride home to to Santa Monica from the uh, taping, and I said, I'm fine. He said, why are you fine? And I said, because I'm, we have a meeting tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock with your fraternity brother and best friend, the president of ABC. Steve McPherson. And Steve McPherson. And he said, well, why would you do that? I said, because you guys, I don't trust you guys. I don't like the way you deal. I went from eight to a pilot to a penalty. <laughs> I, 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 he said, well, Zucker wants to know why we have to do a pilot now. I said, because I'm going to ABC tomorrow. <laughs> Jeff Zucker being yeah, the president yeah. of NBC at so, the time. It, we go in and we show the sizzle reel, which is spectacular. You couldn't really tell the difference between Little Richard and, and Tanya Tanya Tucker and and and, and, and Howard Stern, and Howard Stern, and, and Britney Spears. You couldn't even tell the difference. If it was the real one or Elvis and Sinatra. And so we we look at the sizzle. He looks at the sizzle reel and he looks at me and he says, "Why didn't you take Zippy's offer?" <laughs> Zippy, who's who's Zippy? Well, he had such a bad. He, he had worked. <laughs> Steve had worked at NBC, and Zucker had never, in his opinion, honored him. And the truth of the matter was, Zucker was always straight with me, and a lot of people didn't feel that way. I didn't agree with some of the things he did, but he never lied to me, as opposed to Kevin, who's lying to me for Zucker. <laughs> and and uh, but he was straight. He really was straight with me. And it turned. I said, "Zippy, who's Zippy?" He's a Zucker. I knew when he said, "Why didn't you take Zippy's offer?" 
because he knew we had an offer on the table from NBC. I could have sold him this bottle of water. <laughs> it didn't matter what we were selling just for him chance to say, why don't you take Zippy's offer? <laughs> and we, and it was good. He said, we'll have fun. And it was fun. The first three weeks were terrific on the air. And then they took our two hour premiere of Last Comic Standing when we were really coming back strong. And we always went eight to 10. Never went, uh, I mean, always, always nine to 11, never eight to 10. And they put us against, we took our two hour and put it against, uh, the imposter or, and they destroyed us. <laughs> yeah. So I got them for three weeks. We got them for three weeks and then they got us. That's right. With our own show. And what's odd was that when we did the, um, the show, the imposter, which was, uh, changed, the name was changed the next best thing. This was what was a very difficult thing for Peter and I to accept as well, and something that was very odd, is that on ABC that summer, our show was like the most watched show <laughs> on the network. I mean, you know, 10 million, 11 million people were watching the show. The problem was that they were all 50 <laughs> to 60 years old. Well, there was a reason for that. All our finalists were dead. We had <laughs> Sinatra, right. we had Elvis, we had Lucy, and the only one they didn't, we, we, Brittany, they wouldn't let us put on, but she was a transsexual. That's right. We didn't tell them she was a transsexual. Okay. And she was the best. The best. I mean, Brittany, she was better than the real Brittany. The best. And we came down and they look at her person, whatever they signed. I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they would, and she might have, we couldn't get the young, we couldn't get the young viewers because most of the impersonators were doing Sinatra and, as I said, Lucy and Elvis. And we had two Elvises in the final. A young Elvis and an older Elvis. Right. And a drugged Elvis. That's right. <laughs> without, sounds without drugs. And, and they wouldn't let us do Brittany, who might have given us. Yeah. Uh, but, and, but the whole audience was old. But it was amazing. Or dead. But, or dead. <laughs> but it was just amazing to know that you could have the most viewers an entire network, whether it was half hour or hour or whatever for your shows, but you still got canceled because the average age of the audience was four tennis balls. <laughs> that's right. We didn't come. That's right. We weren't canceled. We just didn't get come back. Uh, we, we did all of them. Right I know we went in to try and get it, to keep it going, get it for another year. And I said, it's the best finale I ever did. McPherson says, what are you talking about? I said, we had Lucy. <laughs> we had George Bush. We had Paris Hilton. We had, um, Sinatra, we, we had Neil, you know, we had them all, all the great dead ones. It, it was a great <laughs> one. So um, before we go on to sure. a lot of different things here, I think uh, our audience will love to hear of your beginnings uh, uh, because uh, you have a fascinating story before you ever got in the business of where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in New York City, Manhattan, which was the 50s. Three great center fielders, DiMaggio, I mean, Mantle, Snyder, and Mick, and Willie Mays. And, um, and I knew at 12 years old, Milton Berle, this is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to. Where'd you see Milton? Did you on, see it? On the Texaco Playhouse. I mean, theater, whatever yeah. it was called. And it was a variety show, and I said, this is for me. And so. Well, uh, how, how did you, how did you decide? I want to do this. I want television, did you, did not you, movies. Did no. you know how? No. Okay. <laughs> I thought there were people inside. Before that, I thought there were people inside the radio. <laughs> now I thought there were people in the back of the television. And so I was at NYU, film school. 
Let's stay back there because right. I'm going to share with you that you, I believe you grew up with Bernie Brillstein. Now, Bernie, of course, uh, was one of the greatest managers Legend. of all time. He was part of Brillstein Gray with Brad Gray. He represented everyone from Belushi to Lorne Michaels to Jim Henson to you name it. Bernie was five years older. Five years older. Bernie was my older brother's friend. And we lived in a building called the El Dorado on 90th and Central Park West, which was two towers, but it was a big a courtyard in the middle. And we were 4C, and Bernie was 3B. And he looked exactly the same, except he didn't have the white beard. And he was a great athlete at all. He was a very heavy set, set guy, great athlete. And Bernie would announce the news. Mrs. Engel, the Korean War's over. Mrs. Engel, Mickey Mantle. <laughs> he would scream in the courtyard, just like he did when he was here. And actually, Brillstein Gray was Brillstein. And then he took Brad in. That's correct. Um, and so Bernie, my brother would never take me anywhere, but Bernie would take me with the older guys to the Ranger game Sunday night. He took me to my first Dodger game at Ebbets Field. And when I went off to the Army, Bernie was the only one who showed up <laughs> to see me uh, off. And it turned out, years later, after NYU and after New York, Bernie and I moved out here the same day. And we were both staying at the Beverly Regent Wilshire. How old were you when you moved out here? Twenty. Eight, and maybe. the goal went so at tw you waited till you were twenty. No, I came out on a job. I my company I was working for was transferred me out here. What kind of job was that at the time? I was uh, it was a syndication station group. Got it. And, and I, what was Bernie doing at the time? At Bernie had just moved out. He was part of Management Three with Jerry Weintraub and um, Marty Kummer. and they sent him out here. To open a West Coast office. So you come out at the same time. And, and I'm going to dinner, and there he is uh, with his wife. And I was there with one of my wives. <laughs> <laughs> First blonde wife. <laughs> I have three. And and um, and uh, he they had at that time Frankie Lane. Your, your, all your wives were great housekeepers. They all kept the house. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. In fact, she just sold the house for millions of dollars, <laughs> which I get nothing because <laughs> I've been gone for a while. Um, so you're in the, so you're in L.A. and you decide that you really want to make a mark on the business, and and, and it wasn't going to happen with the company I was with. I knew that it was Capital. It was a uh, Triangle, which was Walt Annenberg's company, and they um, were set, uh, while I was with them. They were bought by Capital Cities, which then bought. ABC. I knew it wasn't that. And and Bernie, well, the first job was a page at NBC, if you want to hear about that. Yes, and that was in New York. That was when I was at NYU. Yeah, so when you were at NYU, you were a page at, at The Tonight Show with Jack Parr, or was yes. it? Okay. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So, Hudson. And being a page, you got paid. You didn't intern. It was a paid no, no, gig. No, got paid. I wanted to be a page. And I was a shy guy in those days. I was at NYU film school, but television, right? And, you know, my parents had all kinds of friends who had a connections. Zero. And they, as it turned out, they got 14,000 applications a year, and they took seven. And it was to be an NBC page because uh, uh, Dave Garraway had been a page, Gregory Peck, Tom Brokaw was the head of the pages when I... So what happened was... 14,000 applicants, seven... Yeah, yeah. And they don't take applications in person, which I didn't know. So one day I said, I got I to gotta, I gotta keep moving. I was a, it was junior in college. So I take the subway from NYU up to 30 Rock, and I go to the desk, and I say, I want to be a page. So all right, I go up to the second floor. I go up to the second floor, and I meet the head of the pages, and he says, why? I said, because it's television. Everyone at film, at film school wants to be in film. I want to be in television, and I need this job to round out what I'm doing. It's going too slow for me, and I'm talking and talking. This is my passion. And he said, we only take <laughs> – we don't take uh, – we don't take – nobody comes in person until – I said, well, then I should get the job since I'm the only one here. And he looks at me and he says, can you start training Monday? One of the guys we picked – uh, dropped out. I said, really? Really? I was really? And I was in. And now this is, I want to stop you because for our listeners and viewers, this is what truly this podcast is all about. You got a young guy in college. He knows that they take seven people out of 14,000. He knows that they take a written application. But he says, you know, I'm going to push forward. I, I can do this. I, I have a shot at this. I need this. I have to have And that this. was not my personality at the time. And it was not his personality. <laughs> he goes up there. He meets with the person. They say, we only take written applications. And we take people in person. He said, well, I'm here in person. He forces the issue more. And he's persistent. And his personality and however he did it got him the gig. And he leapfrogged over maybe a lot of other people that could have been more worthy than him of that job. Maybe people who went through the system and did the system the way they were told to do it. But he didn't. He said, fuck the system. I'm going to do oh, it my I way. Say fuck on here? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yes, you are. You can do whatever you want. Um, so, and that's what I think should be noted. And right in the beginning, to me, that was a huge seminal moment for you because that was the moment when, in my humble opinion, where you realized that following the rules all the time doesn't work. And my winning formula is here now I've proven that I don't follow the rules and I won. 
And there's going to be many examples in this podcast talking to Peter that <laughs> he'll share with you a tremendous <laughs> stories where he bucked the system and didn't do things the way people tell you to do them and won. So keep going with the, uh, the page thing for a well, second. Well, and being an NBC page was it because uh, ABC and CBS, but it was the 30 Rock with the uniforms and the braid. I had red braid, which meant I was nighttime. And, but on Saturday, so I'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, and I wouldn't have to go to the Tonight Show except Thursday, but I didn't have school on Friday. So I'd get an upper floor, like eight, eighth floor, famous 8H, and you could, once, the, once the shows were over, you could study at your desk. 8H so, being the floor of the Saturday Night Live. That's right. It was also Tuscanini. It was also Mary Martin in, in Peter Pan. Uh, it was... And the lucky, all kinds of big specials, but um, and so I was a page. And I, one of my duties was every Saturday was to go to the Ziegfeld Theater at nine in the morning and be on the stage door with four of the pages for the Perry Como show, which was live at eight o'clock. But you'd be there all day. Oh, got it. Right. Okay. That's where I learned everything from Bob Finkel and whose daughter worked for me on a couple of shows like years later, and. And I was usually in charge of stage door. And then the pages, the rest of the pages come down and they put a couple of thousand people in there at night. So the stage door was sacrament. Well, one of the great things, whatever comedian was in town, Bob Hope, Jackie Leonard, uh, Milton Berle, they would come in and they would heckle Perry from the audience during dress rehearsal. Uh, and and it was unbelievable. Any every, every any comedian was in town, and Nick Perry would say, "Well, those guys are funny, but you guys will never be on the show." And it was a great interaction. And one night, I had to go. I had to go do something. I took. A, I said to a page who'd never been on the stage door. He, I said, "Take the door, and if they're not on the list, they can't come in." Right. And I'm walking back. And I see Freddie Fields, the legendary agent. <laughs> and the guy, the guy on the door says to him, I'm sorry, Mr. Fields, you're not on the list. And he looks and he goes, kid, I am the list. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Mr. Fields, come with me. Perry's waiting for you. <laughs> kid, I am the list. <laughs> That's great. But, and then, you know, I, I worked for a company out of Philadelphia. They moved me out. I started in sports. I started doing live sports. In New York. Um, when did you meet the president? I met the president in 1960. And it wasn't at NBC. It was at the Biltmore Hotel. Okay. And I went in to volunteer weeks before that, even before the we had won the nomination. And there was a guy named Harry Brandt who owned all the Brandt theaters. And he was the chairman. I said, I'd like to help. Figuring out, <laughs> I don't know what I'll do. He says, he says, you're just out of college. I, may have, I think I was just out. And he says, you're now in charge of, you're ahead of all the young Democrats in the state. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and, and, and he says, neither does anyone else. You're it. <laughs> so um, the first time Kennedy came in after the nomination, it was a big thing in the ballroom. And I was late. The second floor was our headquarters, Biltmore Hotel. And so I... Uh, I was late to go down to the ballroom, and I'm waiting for the elevator. The elevator opens, and this guy gets off, and he goes, I'm Jack Kennedy. Who are you? And uh, I, you said, I am the list. I, well, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, it gets better what actually, what actually he said. 
So he says, I'm embarrassed. I don't know where to go. I'm supposed to meet Mr. Brandt. I said, I'll take you to him. And we get in the elevator, and it's me and him. And I look around, and I look, and I, I go, Senator, I, I don't mean to be uh, presumptuous, but where's your campaign staff? <laughs> And he looks around the elevator, sees my Kennedy button, he goes, I guess it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with him about a dozen times. Every time he came to New York, uh, we, I would call, and we, at the beginning, we didn't have the crowds at the beginning. Uh, uh, and so I would call up all the Catholic colleges. And I would say, himself is coming. <laughs> we need him. And I remember once we were taking over Rockefeller Center and wasn't supposed to be, but this is owned by the Rockefeller. And we wanted to sneak 200 girls onto the rink and another thousand to get the crowds crazy. And I called the Mother Superior at Marymount and I said, Mother Superior. He's coming. <laughs> and she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can't do it. It's finals. I said, we need it. We need the girls. And she said, how many do you need? I said, 300. <laughs> and she says, it's finals. I said, but we need, we need the girls. She says, I'll be there too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had the Kennedy girls with the hats. They called the skimmer hats. It was straw hats. We had this thing, give change for a change. So even back then you were getting girls for Kennedy. No, I wasn't getting girls for Kennedy. What well, the great stories was, I mean, I was with them in the Garmin Center rally when we thought we were going to get killed. Because the crowd was a million people and we were on a little platform against the building and he pulls up. I go, don't go into the crowd. Don't go into the crowd. And he goes, that was my job to get him up. Right. And he's got, he, he's, and he smiles at me, walks right into the crowd, which probably was a, a calming thing because the crowd was surging and a million people within eight blocks, uh, in the Garmin Center of Eighth Avenue. And so he goes into the crowd. And he, come, he comes up the steps and he looks at me and he goes, you got to have more faith. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the last time I saw him alive, although I was with him in the crowd, but was he was leaving the Carlisle Hotel. And uh, Jackie was pregnant, eight or nine months pregnant uh, with the child who died, Patrick, and, later on. And he was going on the rest of the campaign. And she was going home to Hyannisport. So we're rushing him to the car, and I hear Mrs. Kenny going, Jack, Jack, Jack. And I as he's getting into the limo, he's going to be gone for three weeks, right? I said, Senator, Mrs. Kennedy wants you to say goodbye to her. He goes, he says, he goes, I owe you one, kid. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, let's segue into another person who uh, is no longer with us uh, and uh, somebody who uh, you, I would say, had a unique collaboration with uh, when it came to creating Saved by the Bell and getting it on the air. Take us back, because this was the first. Well, this is a story I have to, you're involved in. Uh, Brandon Tartikoff. So let's, yeah, Brandon Tartikoff, who was... The young 28-year-old, not at that time, but he had been made the 28-year-old president of NBC Entertainment. One day, Barry and I were having one of our breakfasts, and I said, it's some show you were doing, wasn't with me. And I said, Barry, how much do you believe in your show? He said, a lot. I said, how much? He said, I said, would you do anything? He said, just about. I said, would you lie down the president of NBC's office and refuse to leave his office unless he gave you 13 more episodes or called security? He said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, that's what I did. 
We only had seven saved by the bell. But let's go back because mm-hmm. I think this is important oh. because one of the things you always shared mm-hmm. with me, because I always personally, as a manager and maybe in any profession mm-hmm. you're in who's listening, mm-hmm. a lot of times, no matter where you are in the business, your perception of yourself is not always what it, it is. And a lot of times your perception of yourself is, is, is lower than what where you actually are. And for me, I've always had this thing where I've never felt like I was where I, I wanted to be or should be, even though I know that, you know, realistically, uh, you know, things obviously haven't gone uh, badly. And um, when you're in your 40s or in, heading into your 50s, you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a show that went to syndication. I'm having breakfast with a guy who has had like six or seven shows in syndication you know, when is it going to happen? When will it happen? How will things fall into place? Even though people in the industry think that it's all fallen into place for me in other areas, when is it going to be? And Peter was such a calming influence to me because he was the type of guy who really made it late. Uh, the age that he, uh, uh, came up with and, and started pitching to sell Saved by the Bell, I believe, he was in his mid to late forties, maybe even close to uh, fifty. Maybe even fifty. Yeah. So he really had gone a long period of time without really making any significant money, without really making a dent in the business. Nobody really was cared. giving him the time of day. <laughs> Nobody really cared about him. And here's a guy who was heading, you know, maybe fifty years old, and. You know, when was it going to happen for him? But his faith never wavered. And I want you to tell us about how Saved by the Bell okay. came about, how you got to the okay. uh, the in next na- level with that show. In 1986, Brandon and I had breakfast at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we had had some confrontations over several pilots, uh, Uptown Saturday Night with Cleavon Little and uh, California Girls, which was girls at the, the lifeguards at the beach. And... Uh, he said, to him, we had not seen each other in about six or eight months. And then we, we had had some confrontations, uh, mainly not his fault, but his boss at the time, Dick Ebersole. Now he was the head guy. And he says to me, where are you, where are you hanging? Where are you, where are you, where are you at? I said, I'm in Brentwood. <laughs> he said, well, why don't you come to NBC, NBC Productions? I'm really just starting to gear it up. And why don't you come? Um, why don't you come for a year or two? So I said, okay. So I went to, so I went to NBC. I was the lowest paid producer in the building. <laughs> and, and we weren't on a lot like I was later when we had our own company, our own wing of a building. Uh, we were on Lancashire, NBC Productions. And one day uh, I came home. My wife said, how was your day? I said, well, Brandon and I had a meeting. Brandon says he wants me to do a Saturday morning live action comedy uh, because they're losing the high end. And I, and she said, that's great. You, the boys were like three and five at the time. And he, and you've always wanted to do a show. They could grow up with like happy days. She, I, I said, yeah. She said, why did you tell him? I told him to get someone else. <laughs> <laughs> she said, what? He's giving you, you know. Uh, he's he's giving you a, a time slot, perhaps, and you said no. I said, yeah, I said no. So uh, I said, that was stupid, huh? So I went back and I um, said, 
I'll do it. I'll have a show for you in four weeks. I'll have a concept in four weeks. And, uh, and I started to write this concept, um, of an untitled show with a kid named Zach who was a con man, but a lovable con man. And I remember writing the first scene, and my daughter was out for the summer, who was the same age, a little younger than the Bell kids, as it turned out. And I said, what do you think of this scene? She says, I'm in love with Zach. I said, what do you mean you're in love with, with Zach? <laughs> he doesn't exist. He's a name. He says, I'm in love with Zach. Anyway, so we came back, and we pitched the show. And uh, about it was really uh, a week in the life of. From the, when the, when, from the bell rang Monday morning to when the bell rang Friday. And the first year or two, year and a half, we only covered Monday through Friday. And then we went to the beach. We went to Vegas. We went to Hawaii. Well, those were movies. But we also uh, incorporated weekends and all that. And we pitched the show, and Brandon had a bad cold. And by this time, I had a couple of writers on with me, even though I had written. And, and I said, when we go to see Brandon... You don't say a word unless he asks you a direct question. Do you understand that? And when you, when, when you, he asks you a question, it's quick and we get out of there as quickly as possible. This Brandon has some of the greatest ideas and he has some of the worst ideas and we can't wait around for his worst ideas. So he, Brandon had a cold and he's apologizing that he's not up to snuff, which I was delighted because we couldn't get any stupid ideas in and. And what I didn't know was he wanted a junior high school show, and he didn't know, and I didn't say it, that it was the first day of high school. That's when the show started, because I knew we were going to go to the mat on this. And we pitched the thing, and he approves everything. He asked the guys a few questions. Uh, he knew some of them from other shows. And all of a sudden, he said, what are we going to call this thing? I said, I don't know. And he said, how about, he, how about at the bell or when the bell rings? And I said, no, you already did a pilot that failed called at the bell about construction workers. And Tom Tenowitz, who was my number one guy, goes, how about say by the bell? And I look at him. And if a look killed, he would have been dead, vaporized. And and Brandon says, I like that. See if we'll clear. <laughs> and I, we walk out of the meeting. I go, that's the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard. Saved by the bell. I ain't calling my, I ain't calling my show Saved by the Bell. And I say to Franco Barrio, who is my line producer, all right, go through the motions and hopefully it won't clear. The next day I go into stage nine. <laughs> Over the door is a sign Saved by the Bell. <laughs> and, and that's how brilliant I was. The second thing with Saved by the Bell was, the second thing of Saved by the Bell was the song. I had five composers come in and I gave the notion. No bells, no lyrics saved by the bell, no ringing bell. I don't want to hear anything about bells. Five guys come in, the first four guys. It was nothing special. Scotty Gale comes in, and when I w the bell rings on his recording. When I wake up in the morning, and, the bell, and the, my staff thinks I'm going to kill him. I'm, they, they're looking at me. He's going to kill him. And I go, that's it. Don't listen to me. <laughs> and that's how Saved by the Bell came about. Talk about the casting. The cast was amazing. Amazing. We, I remember we, the key was Zach, who talked to the camera. And Brandon wanted him to be like Bilko in the Phil Silver show. He conning the colonel, your eminence, your highness. And none of the guys 
could con and you liked them. So he had to lie to you and he had to smile and you had to love him, which was very difficult. And one day, my casting director, who I, I would call her every day. At who was your Robin casting? Lippin. I'd call at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, She's and uh, incredible, say, Robin Lippin. And I, we were on stage nine, and I would go in the offices where Ellen is. I think Ellen is now. Uh, Elena is now. And I, and I would say, if we don't have Zach, we don't have a show. Every day. And I looked down in the parking lot like an hour later, and there'd be Marissa Govins, who was my producer at the time, with her arm around Robin, walking around <laughs> the lot. And one day she called me, and she said, I found Zach. And he came in with that big smile, and he had dyed his hair blonde. I would have changed the hair color right away if I knew he had dyed it for an Alan Arkin PBS, which was his first job. It was uh, some drama he was in. So he'd only booked one job. Well, wait. I say him. I said, this kid can speak English. He's got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and he had it. And he had it. And... And, I, again, I didn't know about the dyed hair. As Aaron Spelling said to me, I bet on that show you spent as much time with the hairdressers as I did on 90210. <laughs> I said, yeah, if I knew he didn't have really blonde hair, I would have changed the description of the hair. <laughs> right? It's the first thing you change. You know, 6'2 blonde, that goes out the window right away for a five foot four midget who's black, <laughs> if he's the right guy. So one day we're bringing back screeches, and, and, and Mark Paul says to me, you know, he, we already said on him, or going to be, he's, you know, Screeches out there. I said, yeah, that, that kid Dustin Diamond, we're going to bring him. No, no, he is Screech. I said, what do you mean? He's Screech in real life. And, he's, and I said, all right, well, and he was. And we hired him. It turned out he was only 11. I misread his birth certificate. And he was with me 11 years. He was only 22. He was the assistant principal of the new class, say by the bell, and he was only seventeen. <laughs> and he gone to college with this rhyme time show. <laughs> he wasn't even old enough yet. And so I misread it. I thought it was a January birthday and we were okay, the other kids are fourteen going on fifteen. He's thirteen, he'll be thirteen. And the second episode I said to Mark Paul, What's with Dustin? He's such a kid. He's, he's only 11. He's only 11. He's, I said, I would never hire him. And the same thing with Mario. Wasn't the, with Mario Lopez. Mario Lopez. We couldn't find Slater. Slater was supposed to be Vinnie Barberini with a leather jacket from Welcome Back, Carter. Italian kid who was a street kid who was an army brat. And I'm sitting there. I'm going, I just don't like them. And one night I pick up the phone. I think it was stoned. <laughs> and... and no, I wasn't stoned those days. <laughs> I forgot. And and I, I called my casting director and I said to her, where is it written that Slater has to be Anglo? She says, you wrote it. I said, well, he doesn't have to be Anglo. Find me find me an Asian. Find me anyone. But I, I don't like what we're seeing. And um, she calls me. I found Slater. Mario walks in with the dimples, right? And I said, he's Slater. And we didn't deal with his name that he didn't play with a Latin name. And the same thing with Log Voorhees. I won the first diversity award from the Academy. Cosby called me a hero. We're sitting there and they bring Log Voorhees and she was supposed to, Lisa Turtle was supposed to be a Jewish princess from Great Neck, Long Island, who, who I knew, who moved out to California and the princess. And they had brought Log Voorhees in for a guest spot down the line. We weren't in production yet. We we're still writing scripts. And I said, have a read. And they said, have a read for what? 
I said, I reach for Lisa Turtle. They said, well, Lisa Turtle's not black. I said, she is now. <laughs> and that's how, that's, how, um, that's how that came about. And uh, just uh, tell us about some of the people that you brought on the show, that you gave an opportunity to throughout the years that had never done anything in their lives and they became oh. huge, huge stars or at uh, least household names. Um, well, of course, Elizabeth Berkeley and... And Tiffany Ambethys and Tiffany, Tiffany, I, no one wanted Tiffany but Brandon and I. My staff was up in arms, the director. I said, I know she can't walk, she can't talk, and she can't chew gum at the same time, but she's going to be a major star. And they were pissed. <laughs> and, and people don't remember that Elizabeth Berkeley and her were both up for the same part. And then we just, and, and kind of had conflict with the two of them for the five, six years. And, 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 you know, all of them knew uh, Mario had been the drummer on Kids Incorporated. Uh, but some of the people, Denise Richards, we gave her first job to. Leah Remini was with us for six. Um, Scott Wolf was with us. I didn't even know he was with us. In People Magazine, he stopped me. We had regular extras. They were in the Glee. They were in every class. You know, if they go in the Glee Club, if on the basketball team with certain extras, and I didn't realize that he <laughs> had been with us for five years. Um, who else? Bridget Wilson, who married Pete Sampras. Zach, do I have lipstick on my teeth? <laughs> and um, who else? Uh, was there ever anybody that you brought on the show that, that you had the fire? The big model. What was her name? Kathy Ireland. Kathy Ireland. There was a, Zach and Kelly were together, and we had to break them up. Because Zach on the loose is fun. Zach married or going steady is not fun. And it was funny the day when the kid from um, uh, from Melrose Place kisses her, the audience is screaming, booing. And between scenes, Zach and Mark, Paul, and Tiffany come to me and say, we don't want to break up. <laughs> I said, you're not breaking up. Kelly and Zach are breaking up. People were booing and screaming from the audience when she kissed the other guy. Um, but uh, Kathy Island, we needed to give Zach someone to cheat on Kelly with. This was before they broke up, right? And we bring it. We want the hot nurse, <laughs> Kathy Island, the swimsuit, you know, um, Sports Illustrated model. But Kathy couldn't talk, okay? And she must have dazzled us in the office <laughs> because I hired her on the spot. Um, I, I think she read. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> so we're at the table reading. Now, everyone at the table reading, same thing at the dinner, sat. Like Mario always sat next to me. There was a table in the cast. Mario always sat there. And there's one there. And we start the t reading. And the kids are only 14 at the time. Maybe Elizabeth was 15. And every t so we go around the table. Cassie's line comes, and she had his eye twice. And one, and Mark Paul puts down his script <laughs> and looks at me. <laughs> and by the by the second scene, the second act, every one of them are waiting for Cassie to talk. <laughs> I mean, every one of them have their script down. They do, and they're waiting like this. And she just wasn't up to it. Okay, so now I say to my director. I'm going to come down when you're getting her scene staged. I never come down on Monday. I never come down unless there's a problem until Tuesday run through. I want them to have their time, right? And I'm down the set at 2 in the afternoon. Everybody knows why I'm there, right? And, uh, and she just, she just 
couldn't do do, do the pot. And so I call her manager. It's a terrible thing, but she's a huge success. She could buy and sell us twenty thousand <laughs> times over. And he says, "You're firing Kathy Island." And I was a wise ass on the call because he was like fighting me. Like I wanted to fire her, right? I mean, I'm the one who reached out for her and called. Could we have Kathy Island? And he says to me, you, I can't believe what you're doing. I said, well, I got to tell you the truth. You got to get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> and then you remember that movie, the volleyball movie, Side Out? Uh-huh. You see it for the first time in the courtroom. Stan Gotti would come on the set and Kathy do it this way. Anyway, Bell. Okay, the big story of Bell. Yeah, was, so look- would you lie down? Okay. I remember one night, we were not even on the air. And look, you know, the, ga- the gate, you know, where the reception is, the glass building. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a call. I have 300 girls here, says the security. They won't go home unless Mark Paul comes down and signs some autographs. It's like 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> All right. So I go. How to- many episodes into your Three. season? We weren't Three. on the air yet. So you weren't even on the no, air No, we yet. had seven episodes. That's all we had, okay? You had seven episodes. Nothing had aired yet, but they're outside. And we were going on in prime time. How do they know? What, what are they? How do those 300 girls? They were at the taping. Oh, we would bust okay. in all the I teenage girls. I understand. We would bust them in so yeah. we could control when they left. Got it. Or when they got there on time, we controlled the buses, okay? So you don't want, you want the audience to be there when you need them. So I bring them down, and you have the set of glasses, then there's a reception, then there's a parking lot, right? And he looks at me, and he goes, don't leave me alone. And I looked at Mark Paul. I said, your life will never be the same after tonight. And when he went to Paris, midnight with Tiffany Amethyst, 10,000 kids at the Gaulle Airport, breaking down things in Philadelphia, Taco Bell with Mario, and he hid from the crowd. They broke down the walls. I mean, it was amazing. So we only have seven, right? And we go on the air in prime time. And at 7 in the morning, I get a call from Brandon. You beat family ties. We were after them. Then we, were on a, we were on three nights. To let you know how uh, you know tough it was and the competition, believe it or not, was, was fierce because you think it's more fierce because there's more networks, but it, it, it wasn't. You were, you were up against wow, behemoths. A, my, my lead-in was a chipmunk. <laughs> and the Smurfs won my lead out. I was against a rabbit, a bear, and a racer. <laughs> Who the fuck's gonna find our show, right? So we go on in prime time, and I, the worst reviews ever. Even though we won in the ratings, uh, uh, what kind of name? This woman in the L.A. Times. What kind of name is Tiffany Amber Thiessen? What kind of review is that? And they felt sorry for the kids. The San Francisco Examiner and the New and the New York papers in L.A. destroyed us. They felt sorry that the, for the kids on Saturday morning that the show was going to be for them. And I got interviewed. I said the kids will be there. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know we had we had developed a whole thing that never existed. Tweens and teens, right? So. All of a sudden, I get a call from this writer in San Diego. He says, how you doing? I said, well, the review. He says, don't worry. The review is going to be different in San Diego and in the, mid, in the heart of America. Uh, he's my kids' daughters love the show. And all of a sudden, the reviews started coming in Atlanta and Chicago. Love. I get calls from friends. Marcy Cossie, Cossie Werner, who I'd known for years. Uh, why We both had our kids to live in the same hospital at the same time. 
She says, my kid called me. My kids love Saved by the Bell. I never heard anything love Saved by the Bell. So we had seven. We go, we're go. going on the air now on Saturday morning, and they're planning to mix it with 13 bombs, two of this from Egypt and something from Tanzania <laughs> and crap that they had bought. And I say, we're going we're gonna to die. We're going to be off in seven weeks. So I go up to Brandon's office. John Agolia, the head of business affairs, is there. Who doesn't want to spend a dime? Um, Kevin Riley's there, who's the just out of college, who's the exec on the show, and we, you know, he the he, current executive at a network. Yeah. Again, uh, you have people the, the who are signed thing to. There is. <laughs> <laughs> we would give him notes on how he was giving notes. <laughs> You're not sitting up straight, and we named Screech's robot after him, Kevin. Right, Kevin the robot, and. <laughs> And I still have the same trouble with him today. <laughs> now he's the chairman of Fox. So um, they're in the room, and I said, Brandon, you know me. Have I ever – you've seen the audience. Oh, he also said, am I the only one who thinks they're in junior high? I said, yes. <laughs> I said, you've sat in the audience. You've seen the screaming. You saw the – we will be off the air in seven weeks if you mixed it in with all that broken crap you have. And – and I said, I've never said to you, this can't, something can't miss. These kids are going to be the hottest things in the world. I didn't really believe it. <laughs> and, and, and he said, I have no money. You're not getting it. And I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lie down on the floor in front of your desk. And I'm going to stay there until you give me 13 or you take me out in chains. <laughs> and John Agolia says, he's right, but I'm getting out of here. And, and Kevin, Bolts for the door. <laughs> and Brand goes, very funny, very funny. And I lie down in front of his desk. And he starts running calls to Mike Ovitz at CVAA and this one and that one. And, and, you know, and I keep popping up. I keep popping up with my hands <laughs> like this. 13 of call security. Very funny. His wife calls. He says, a maniac on my floor. <laughs> and, and, um, and finally, I said, and finally, he looks at me, he goes, all right, kid, kid, I'm like 20 years old, <laughs> 10 years old. He went, all right, you got 13 more. And I head for the door, <laughs> and I don't want to look around. And he says to me, and he says to me, Peter. And I go, what? He says, knock it out of the park. Incredible And the rest story. is history, 85 countries, uh, 11 years of different bells, uh, it was it was the greatest journey, greatest ride of my life. Wow, great ride for so many people who've seen the show. That's uh, just That's unbelievable. It. And again, it's a, a testament to the persistence and, if and I didn't not do following that, the rules of the game. Because you didn't follow. If you had followed the rules of the game, you wouldn't have gotten well, that. Well, when I went to the meeting, I thought I would make a case, and he would say yes. <laughs> I didn't plan for him to say no, and when he did, I was desperate. And in retrospect, if I hadn't done that. It would have been seven weeks and out. I want to share something about you that a lot of people don't know. When you did your deal at NBC, uh, what's fascinating about you and a lot of executives and producers envied you is you did a deal at NBC that was unprecedented. Um, it was a deal that is, doesn't even come close to existing today, and no one has it and no one ever will again. Will you just talk briefly about... Well, it didn't happen right away. I know, but will you just talk briefly? Because what happens is is that if you experience success and you can get to where you need to go and people know they have to have what you have, again, 
uh, part of the theme of this podcast is where you can have people buy the okay. balls. Okay. Brandon left. I went through nine. Pre- I was had nine presidents of NBC in the 20 years I was exclusive to them. Almost 20 years. <laughs> I had Brandon. <laughs> I had Warren Littlefield for a brief moment. I had Don Allmeyer. I had Scott Sasser. I had <laughs> I, I had Garth. Garth Ansier. I I had Zucker. <laughs> I had Gaspin. And I had Ben Solomon. <laughs> and when Don Olmeyer came, when Brandon left, I was was very distraught because Brandon felt he had been pushed out. And he was actually doing a guest spot on, on Saved by the Bell. He said, why do you want me? I said, I can't get anyone else. And Bob Wright, he was in the dressing room was in his dressing room trying to talk him out of leaving. Bob Wright at the time was the chairman of uh, NBC. And I went up there finally and said, Brandon, I need you in makeup. (laughs) And Bob's daughter was on the show that week. I put her in, too. And I said, Brandon, I need you in makeup. Bob, in all due respect, you're costing me money. (laughs) And Bob looked at me. No one says that to me. (laughs) You're costing me money, Bob. That that he understood. (laughs) And and Brandon left. And when Don Allmeyer came in, uh, we weren't, uh, we were already doing, we were doing Saved by the Bell in California Dreams, which was a stepchild. It was a shame. This was a great show. We wrote 78 original songs. And when Don came in, I had heard him being a locker room brawler, bully kind of guy. And, and I really, um, was concerned that we, things were going so well that maybe they wouldn't go so well. Right. And, and I really didn't know him well. We met, but I didn't really know him. And one day I'm in the commissary. This is in the book. You'll love it. And I used to take the first day of pre-production, I'd take the writers to the Peacock Room. And we you know, the rest of the time I'd send food in so they wouldn't keep writing. And we're sitting there, and Don Allmeyer comes walking, and he kneels, and he kisses my ring. And I go... Does everybody here know uh, Don Allmeyer, <laughs> president of it? And it turned out that they had, it was his first pilot season, and they were $10 million short on two pilots. And in the meeting, just before he came down, someone from NBC production said, well, we just got $10 million in from Europe last night on Saved by the Bell. And... um uh why don't we just put that money? Of course, I had a small piece. If I had the piece I had later on, I'd own this building with you. <laughs> <laughs> and Which you own already. <laughs> Excuse me. And, and he then, well, what's this about? Say, well, he comes down, and then I was his guy. I was, I was Don's guy. He said, you have two shows, I want you to have four. When I had four, he said, I want you to have six, and we ended up with six. So talk about the deal okay. that you the and your deal. attorney, uh, yeah, Ernie Dell, who is yeah. one of the okay. greatest attorneys yeah. in, in the history of this town. Because okay. I think uh, this is a side of the business that you don't get to hear okay. about, and uh, and I think it's important. Uh, we have the creative side, but before you get to the creative side, sometimes the business okay. side is what I takes I had made you. the worst deal when I came there. As I say, as I said, if I had, I, I'm not complaining. We've done beautifully on Saved by the Bell, but I wasn't a major participant. I was the only participant, but I wasn't a major one. And it was 1997. We had six, six shows shooting and the King brothers 
wanted me. And and NBC had no options. Now the King brothers explain to our King audience. World. They do King Oprah. World. Yep. They did, yep. well, Oprah does Oprah now, but they always distributed Oprah. Yeah. And they, they were the biggest guys in syndication. And they saw what Saved by the Bell had done in syndication. And I went over to their offices and they wanted to buy me and my company. And we realized NBC had no more options. And when Ernie Dell went to see Don all, he went berserk. How could you do this to us? And I knew I wasn't going to go with them. I had six shows shooting with NBC. And we, we were family and everyone's winning. And, and what happened was that, um, we wanted a five year deal and we wanted 50% of everything without distribution fees. Now, so we, now I want I'm you to explain, explain this okay. because this is going Everyone to. Everyone wonders about how much do you have of the profits? It's what you define as profits. What is profits after what? Do you, can you take off this? Can they take off this? They can take off this. They can take off 50%, 40%, 30% of distribution fees. Known as Forrest Gump accounting, right. where the, right. the movie made $300 so, bill, million. Right. Dollars so, and so what it is is nothing. definition. So under our new deal, which would not apply to Bell, unfortunately, again, I'm not complaining because I still get residuals and profits for a show I did 20 years ago, um, we got 50% of adjusted gross. That meant that the only things they could take off was actual costs. No distribution fees. Foreigners usually 40, domestic 30. That means when Jay Moore and I were partners on Last Comic Standing, every dime that came in, we got more than them because our 50 was worth more than their 50 which is maybe one of the reasons why they fucked with us all the time because we were making all the money. And that, that not on the advertising, not on the air, but on the afterlife. But Peter's deal was so incredible that on Last Comic Standing, he was making more money than the network on the show. Think oh, on about the, on, Not on the original. But you think no, about not that. Not on the advertising. Yeah, we were making more money because we had no costs. They could take actual costs and some minor... Uh, and I wouldn't let them go over budget. I remember the network is saying, "We want f- fuck you. We're not spending more money. <laughs> Usually it's the other way around. They're yelling at you. You're not spending. You can't spend that money. I'm yelling at the finance guys. We're not spending that. If you want that, go to the network and get it. <laughs> You're spending my money. So it was a total reverse. They were spending my money. And, um, and I wouldn't let them. And uh, and your client and friend, my friend, uh, we we did great. Amazing. Uh, and that deal will never be done again, and they're right. You were the last person to ever have that deal. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's move on to I some... i got to get back to the ocean. I don't, I'm going to get the Benz if I'm in town too You can long. see the ocean from here. Do you remember here, the Benz? Want. Yes, I do. I remember <laughs> that show uh, was it, uh, with Lloyd Bridges. Underneath the water. Sea Hunt. <laughs> Um, let's talk about some holy shit moments. Okay. All right? Yeah. All right. Let's ask some honest questions. Okay. What's your proudest professional moment in your career? I lie down and ran into the cop's <laughs> office. <laughs> the proudest moment, one of the proudest moments, oddly enough, was on uh, Last Comic Standing. When Josh Blue, who you found... This is an interesting story. Uh, just break in here. Sure. I um, 
at times in my uh, life and my career, I have this kind of like, I don't know what it is, the psychic or thing that happens How with me. How about its ability? <laughs> okay, ability. And I had uh, seen a, uh, a video of Josh Blue, and I remember um, I made a DVD of the uh, his set, and I came to the very first meeting at Last Comic Standing, a place where I never was welcome. The fourth year. The fourth year, a place where I was never welcome at Saturday, uh, of, of uh, Last Comic Standing. But Peter somehow <laughs> always maneuvered a way where I wouldn't get fired every year. Even was, after Jay was gone. <laughs> yeah, even after Jay was gone. Every year they would have meetings. Okay, we're going to fire Barry. And then the meeting would happen afterwards the first day. And I'd be there and they're like, what the fuck is Barry doing there? They're like, I, I don't know. Didn't you He's tell him? executive producer. You didn't tell him. <laughs> And so I remember I, you guys were talking and I took the disc and I slid it across the table and I remember it was turning around and around and stopped in the middle and I said, that's going to be the guy who's going to win the show this year. And everybody looked at me and said, what, are you going to fix it again, Barry, as one of your clients? I said, no, it's not one of my no, clients. It's a, it's a kid. That's right. <laughs> it's a kid from Denver. And it happened to be Josh Blue, and he happened to win the show that year. But anyway, go well, on. Happened when, well, that was a holy shit moment for me. I'll tell you about it in a second. But Barry never was in the room. I never, I never was allowed in the room. People always thought I was in the room mm -hmm. making the decisions right. for Last Comic Standing, and people thought I was fixing things. And NBC made me sign a 66-page contract Which saying that <laughs> saying that I was not allowed to manage anybody. I was not allowed to do anything. I was not allowed to financially participate in anything. I just had to be there as like a, uh, I don't know what I was. but And Jay wasn't allowed in the room. That's right. As a host. Um so what happened was, we I see the kid in New York. I think he was in New York, wasn't he? That's where we he auditioned. And I said, this kid, kid is great. And we always talked about holy shit moments, right? And we're getting, we get down to the sem we get down to the semifinals. Which ten are going to the boat? That year was a boat. Yeah, that's there. right. That, that's another place that I, <laughs> one of my great ideas that uh, probably wasn't so great. It wasn't great. But it, sounded, <laughs> it sounded great, though. The Queen Mary, that piece of crap. The rooms are the midget rooms. That was my big. That was my big pitch that year to keep a job, and that's what. Right, the... but but it sounded great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're doing the semifinals in Vegas. Yeah, at and, the Paris Hotel. And at the Paris Hotel, and I'm in the editing room because the semis weren't live. Uh, they we could edit them, right? And because we voted, the judges and me and the network, and and not the not America yet, and so there was no worry. You know, we saw the we saw the whole set, and we're I'm in editing, and Josh Blue is getting his key to the boat, whatever your passport to the boat, and as he's coming out to get it, I said, put it in slow motion, <laughs> and you put the kid in slow motion <laughs> with cerebral palsy. And all of a sudden, every my you get the hat stands up on your arms. You know, it was that holy shit moment. And we won an award from the uh, governor for that. I remember my speech. Josh Blue taught us not to be afraid of people who were different. And Josh Blue did not win because he was uh, handicapped. He won because he was the funniest. So that was a great moment. Holy shit moment was uh, uh, Saved by the Bell was. <laughs> Five six years of holy shit moments. 
Tell me uh, if, if all of the episodes were drowning in the ocean and you can only save one that you'd put in a time capsule. I can't do that. Yes, you can. No, my fam, my kids, and my everyone will kill me for it. A risky business. <laughs> risky business when we did a takeoff on um, on risky business where Screech's mother's going for her anniversary, which was Ruth Buzzy. <laughs> great, great casting to. Graceland, and she put Zach in charge of the house. That's like putting Hitler in charge of the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how long it'd be before he worked in Hitler. Well, I have a chapter in the book, Hitler, I'm so over you. <laughs> I told you about that. Well, you got to just break in here for a second about the Hitler things if the Hitler wasn't there, because this is... Well, Hitler had a big influence on my life as a little kid when I found out about the Holocaust, that all my relatives were being killed, Right. So Hitler's had the biggest influence on my life. I knew about more about Hitler than anything. And so I'm writing the book, and Stephen says, what are you going to do about Hitler? Stephen is his son. My son who's rewriting him, the genius. And I mean the genius. And so I said, I'll write a letter, letter to Hitler. Hitler, I am so over you. Thanks for fucking up my childhood. I always I thought it was my mother. Thanks for ruining camp. Thanks for every time I go to the doctor, I think of Mengele. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for fucking up the Olympics. <laughs> sure, you had your Olympics and you fucked everyone else. <laughs> that's, so that's that chapter. But anyway, so Zach's in charge. And of course, the boys are doing the air guitar and they have the statues. And it turned out that was Tori Spelling's first of like eight. And, um, and it was a great episode where they sell Berkeley to some guy without telling her because they lost the dog, hound dog, in a poker game. It was a great episode. It was, it was, it was one of my favorites. Like, around when I did 35 colleges, uh, they would ask me that, and I would say, what's your favorite? Got and it. including my daughter, they all liked a thing called Jessie's Song, where she took no-dos and acted like she was on heroin. <laughs> and, it was, and it's funny, but it was a favorite episode when I would go around uh, – Go around the college campuses, but yeah. another holy shit moment. I remember we we would we were I was away and we were doing something in New York and and Jeff Gaspin said to me, who was you, then the president, president of NBC, he said, he said to me, "Don't you miss us?" I said, "I miss this, not you guys." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Tell me your biggest professional disappointment. First pilot, primetime pilot I did, it got on the air. I was at Universal. I had great writers. Harvey Miller did Private Benjamin. Jerry Belson, legendary, would come in and punch up. And it was called Sirota's Court. And NBC, we did the pilot. We got on for mid-season 13. We actually did 20 of them. Fred Willard's first job. It was based on Judge Sirica, who put the Watergate guys in jail. Uh under Nixon, uh, Nixon thing. So what happened was it was very social. In fact, Frank, we go on the air and remember NBC and their brilliant wisdom. I think one of the networks did it, put a f four half hours on together. Never been on eight to 10. <laughs> okay. Television 101. You do not put two comedies on together. Never, you, but never put four. And I think ABC, or NBC today, September, have four new comedies on. Television 101. By the time we were on at 9 o'clock, the audience was watching Beretta and Charlie's Angels and shows that have been hits for years. And we went on the air, and it was a great show. 
It was socially challenging. Um, and, and John Rich of the New York Times, who hates television, said Sirota's quote would be sociologically disturbing if it wasn't so outrageously funny, which was our concept. Michael Constantine was the judge. Fred, um, uh, Fred Dreyer, I mean, Fred Willis, first job as the DA. And they didn't even cancel us. <laughs> we just floated off into the sunset. We aired, we, we, we were never on two weeks in a row. That's how sensitive the show was. And we, everyone thought we had a hit reading all the reviews. I knew we were canceled before, before we finished shooting. That was a great disappointment because it was a game changer. For instance, All in the Family was a game changer. MASH was a game changer. This was a social game changer. And um, it was night court in the grubbiest, and Sirota had put the governor in jail, so they put him in night court. He had been a big judge. And uh, that was a big disappointment because I felt it was a socially, it was socially disturbing on the justice system. And this was 1977. And that was one of the big disappointments of my life. And one of the other disappointments that I wanted to talk about and, and uh, with you and uh, personal and professional, which was heartbreaking. Um, when you had your company, there was somebody who uh, ran your company who was near and dear to you and near and dear to me named Linda Mancuso. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted you to take a few minutes to talk about... Uh, wow. That was terrible. Um, Linda Mancuso was head of children's and family programs at NBC, and we worked very close together. In fact, I remember the day Mario Lopez auditioned. She was sitting at... She was, fanning herself and i said who's that girl <laughs> in brandon's office fanning herself she was a great friend a great supporter and for 17 years we talked every day on the phone um or and then after several years when we had our own company she came over across we call it across the street but across bob hope drive was our building and became the president of my company and um she got cancer about um, late 90s, or about 2000. And she came to our house from the doctor. I remember Stephen took a hand. He was like eight, said, I'm sorry. Well, however old he was, uh, 13 years ago, he was about 14. I'm sorry, you're sick. And we, we, um, we were able to get her, help her through it. What happened was she had to shave her head. So we had six shows, remember. I sent a memo. We all can't shave our head on Tuesday, but we can all wear hats. And that week, 1,600 people wore hats, okay? And a couple of guys at the network actually did um, a shave their head, but everyone wore hats. Wherever she went, people were wearing hats. And, um, and then uh, she recovered, and I gave her a, we gave her a 40th birthday party in our backyard where she wanted to dance with her father one more time and she did and then everything was fine we thought and then um it came back and she would you know i never heard a complaint one day we were at ed wilson's office i can't remember where he was at the time and we wait she's cranky and i go long night she went cancer night and that's the only <laughs> night through time and and it, it was it was really heartbreaking uh and the last time i saw her i mean it was, it was terrible. 
And I was in Virginia, and I got a call from a brother that um, I got a call from a brother that was the end. And I and I got on a plane. It was had to come out anyway for the Saved by the Bell DVD voiceovers with the cast. You and, got the call that she was. But I was probably coming not, anyway. But she so was I'm probably gonna not going to make it. Not, and I flew out to LA. I got in the limo. And I said, "Take me to St. Vincent's Hospital." And the phone rang. It was a brother Rob that she had died passed away and i was kind of i i was actually i was actually relieved i didn't want to see her there a lot of our guys were down there david um tenzer a lot of ca guys a lot of my people were down there i didn't want to see her like that so i came then mcpherson and i gave the memorial at the beverly hills hotel and uh i spoke one of the first because i had to get we were shooting at the improv and and I talked about how um, what I remembered about Linda, you know, it was a very moving thing. I mean, I, I would cough for my, and she'd go, "Don't croak, Pete." She was the only <laughs> one who called me Pete, except the Teamsters, and that's why she called me Pete because you know I hated it. And she'd go, "Don't croak." I go, "Don't you croak?" And people would be get crazy when they would hurt her because they knew she had was dying. And we, that's how we got through it. Don't you croak on me. And I would say, don't you croak. Don't you croak on me. I'll never talk to you again. And Linda was wonderful. She was the heart and soul of our company. And, and I was going through my own problems just uh, prior to this. And she was a great, great friend and a great, great loss. Everyone loved Linda. Yeah. And Everyone loved Linda. Incredible relationship. And you, uh, you, at the, you were at the memorial. Yeah. It was, am- it, Hills it was amazing. And Everyone she- was there. Amazing. All the cast from our shows were there. And uh, she was very, very inspirational. And uh, I guess as we wrap this up, I think uh, the best way to do it is to um, tell our audience, if you will, um, what advice do you have for a young person who wants to become a a producer uh, or an executive in this this town or a writer or anything? And what advice do you have for a performer a, an actor an actress a comedian somebody who to break through and 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 make it and 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 make a difference i have several principles one you got to fall in love you got to fall in love with whatever you do if you're in a creative business i mean accounting i i don't know about accountants falling in love you got to fall in love and you got to have your heart broken if you don't have that much pain you have passion you have to have passion. Um, I tell, I, when I went around the country, I did the three P's. Uh, professionalism, passion, and perseverance. And you've got to fall in love. And my heart was broken on that first primetime show, Sirota's Court. Broken. I was devastated. Um, and, and, but if you don't have your heart broken, that means you don't have the passion. And so professionalism, I would say the three P's, professionalism. You've, got to be professional an actor has to know his lines uh he has to be on time he you have to be courteous you have to be in the scene it's not a game it's your job second you have to have passion my daughter had 19 jobs after she graduated from skidmore with a degree in child psychology she wanted to be a comedian but you know her partner Anna, and and she's a dad I can't do anything else. Lauren could do other things, but she couldn't do anything else. You have to have a passion. You have to have a passion. You have to lie on the floor of Brandon's Tartikoff's office. 
You have to go that extra mile. You have to say, you have to believe in what you're saying. And, 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 and you have to believe and you have to throw everything in it. And perseverance. You know, Winston Churchill had been thrown out of every school in, in England both preparatory school and university. And now he's the prime minister. And now he goes back, and this is what I, sorry, I always tell, he goes back to Harrod, where he had been thrown out of also. And he's the commencement speaker. And he gets up and he says, never, 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 never quit. And he sat down. That was the whole speech. And I say, you've got, if an actor, act anywhere. The writers never want to hear this from me. What should we do? Read. Read everything. Uh, one of my favorite books is McCullough's uh, uh, um, John Adams. The scene of George Washington trembling, can't shaking with the enormity of being the president, can't talk. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to do a George Washington revolutionary thing. But that emotion is part of me now. You can't, you gotta have more experiences, just your life experiences, if you're gonna broaden your vision. You should write about what you know about. But I say to write is write. Steve Cano, one of the greatest in our business, he's right up there with, um, what's his name? Dick Wolf and Aaron Spelling. No one's up there with Aaron. <laughs> and he told me when he lectured one of my classes, he said that for five years, he wrote every single day Five and a half days a week. When he, he's drive his father's furniture truck in the morning, he drove, wrote for five years and he never sold anything. But he was honing his craft. So I say to writers, write. I say to actors, act any way you can. Performers, perform wherever you can and learn your craft. And that's the advice. And get, you gotta fall in love and you gotta have your heart broken. If you haven't had your heart broken, what kind of shows you're developing? Well, it comes full circle, Peter, because you talk about heart and, uh, and you're truly one of the most amazing people I've ever met oh. in the business. And I'm so grateful you're here. And, uh, I mean, to do what you've done over a thousand episodes, 1500, two Emmy nominations. Um, never won an Emmy. Never had a dinner. Never had a dinner. <laughs> Uh, what is that? Red buttons. Never Red had a buttons dinner. never had a dinner. Right. But uh, Peter, thank you so much for coming. It's just been such an honor, and uh, our audience is going to love you. Thank wow. you so much, and good luck with the book, I Was Saved by the Bell. We'll be looking forward to it. Peter Engel, everybody. Thank you, my friend. And uh, everybody listening, listen, if you uh, like the show, uh, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. Thanks a lot. This is Barry Katz, and this is the Industry Standard. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have.
never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.